The World Health Organization tells all countries to prepare for the high possibility of a coronavirus pandemic. This infectious disease process has spread worldwide to many countries. All walks of life and groups of people are affected. Currently, there are 79,000 reported cases worldwide, which has raised a remarkable amount of concern. However, through all of this, we must remember the incarcerated population. This particular episode will shed light on the importance of being prepared to be able to identify, manage, and treat this vulnerable population. My name is Dr. Susan Rashid. Good morning. We have hi. We have Dr. Morjani here with us. He's an infectious disease specialist, and he's going to talk to us about coronavirus and the incarcerated population. So, Dr. Morjani, go ahead and um, tell us about yourself. So, infectious disease specialist working at Westchester Medical Center in the Partners Health uh, Infectious Disease Clinic, uh, running that clinic now for six years rediscovering the care delivery of outpatient infectious disease services to patients in the underserved disenfranchised setting and then uh, working as a consultant to New York State in infectious disease for the last uh, 26 years uh, helping to design care delivery for HIV, hepatitis, STIs and tuberculosis in the prison setting from 1994 onwards help design all kinds of policies and rollouts of uh, care delivery programs to take care of uh, infectious disease in prison. How many years have you been doing this for? 26 years. 26 years. Okay. So why don't you tell us about your experience with the, um, your experience with the Ebola virus when it had its outbreak in 2014? So the Ebola virus outbreak in 2014 was a limited outbreak in the United States. It started in Africa and then a few cases being in a global economy made it down to the U.S. Fortunately, there was no effect on the prisons directly, at least in New York, where no people who were either suspected or exposed to Ebola were either put in jail or in prison. And that is actually a, a good thing because people who were screened and from these countries who had potential exposures were put in quarantine and excess care was taken not to put them in closed settings where transmission could occur. My Ebola virus in the prisons, even if it did happen, if there was one case or a few cases, it would be easy to control because the transmission is mostly from direct contact with infected blood. And so you could easily isolate that patient, put that patient in a strict isolation room in a healthcare facility, and uh, nobody would get exposed in the prison setting. Uh, So that was, you know, we did design uh, policies in New York State prisons with the help of Department of Health that in case there was a patient that presented with Ebola into a jail or a prison setting, what would we do? And and those policies were pretty straightforward, direct, where we would refer that patient to a tertiary care facility for strict isolation and management. Okay, a tertiary facility. So the Im- impact on the prison setting was going to be very minimal, we knew that. So when you created protocols, could you share with us what kind of guidelines you provided the healthcare staff? Um, with improv- and providing the care in regards to Ebola virus for the incarcerated population? So the guidelines or the protocols that were set up in New York State Prison at that time were all taken from the CDC. So if you go to the CDC website for Ebola virus and go to healthcare personnel and go to infection control, we just duplicated those completely. And so it had to do with strict isolation with the uh, protective gear, personal protective equipment, the donning and doffing, and the infection control personnel, the nurses were all trained in those procedures. And there was a protocol as to if a patient came in, it would be strict isolation, would then 
you know, we would then call the emergency services and have that patient transferred to a tertiary care facility. In, in our case, it was going to be Westchester Medical Center. In uh, the southern hub, in the northern hub, it was going to be ECMC. And uh, in the upstate hub, it was going to be Albany Medical Center. So we identified those three hospitals as the one that would be receiving a patient if the need arose. But there was nothing specific about those guidelines in the prison setting. Okay. Um, What other experiences have you had with infectious disease and caring for the incarcerated population? My first biggest challenge was in 1996 when there was a huge outbreak of tuberculosis in the HIV patients, which then spread to the non-HIV patients in the prison setting. And that was all published in the MMWR and how we got that under control over the next year and two was a very big challenge. But that is what has actually prepared us to deal with the outbreak of any infectious disease that would happen in the future in the prison setting, at least in New York. Okay. And so... That has provided a lot of guidelines for a lot of clinicians that work in the incarcerated setting. So we for ser- tuberculosis, yes, and then you know, based on that process, we then developed guidelines for HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, for STIs, and you know, so disease-specific guidelines have now been created for all those infectious diseases and potentially for measles. You know, we had a measles right. scare. In New York, fortunately, nothing happened uh, for herpes, for herpes after, for mm-hmm. you know Chibos. any other infectious disease that may happen. We do take the CDC guidelines and then we modify them to our setting in New York State Prison and put in measures to to make sure that the patients are uh, properly isolated and taken care of if they present in the prison setting. And that's what we are going to do, for example, with any emerging disease, such as the new coronavirus. Speaking of the coronavirus, it is. it appears that it originated from Wuhan, China. Would you share with us your impression on the coronavirus? Why don't we start with the signs and symptoms, the clinical presentation, though it is published on CDC and World Health Organization. It's good to hear from an expert in infectious disease such as yourself, what your clinical, uh, to share with us the clinical presentation of coronavirus, what is it that we have to look out for as clinicians? So uh, the guidelines and the, uh, and the uh, guidance from the CDC is actually pretty comprehensive. So this is a new coronavirus and it's called the 2019 NCOV, new coronavirus, and they're now calling it the SARS coronavirus 2. Oh. Uh, which is, you know, so it's a, coronaviruses are viruses with spikes on their surface, so that's why they call the crowns of coronavirus. And they have the ability to to go be transmitted from person to person via droplets. Okay. The only difference between lots of these coronaviruses is the infectivity and the ability to then create disease by way of its interaction with the human body and the immune system. So different coronaviruses have different present, different severity of presentation. The presentation is the same. It's a flu-like illness, mm-hmm. uh, except that in the flu, a lot more people get fever. However, with coronaviruses, in several cases, there's been no fever. But some of the common symptoms include fever, cough, sputum, headache, diarrhea, GI symptoms, nausea. And then, of course, when it gets into the lower respiratory tract, you start to get shortness of breath and chest pain and hypoxemia. And so it's a typical flu-like illness, except this is a lot more severe and it has a much higher mortality than the flu. Right. In some cases, especially in the elderly, especially in people with underlying diseases of the lung and heart. So they have a more, um, they have a more vulnerable uh, picture because of their underlying disease process to really get to really have a higher mortality with the novel coronavirus. It, That's correct. So novel or new coronavirus, whichever way. Yeah. <laughs> of course, the definition is novel. I I just say new coronavirus. Uh, but you know, COVID nineteen uh, is the disease that 
that's been called now caused by this NCOV 2019. So in patients with other medical conditions, diabetes, immunosuppression, this virus can really cause a lot of damage in the body and then lead to pneumonia and lead to lung sort of lung function collapse and that leads to a much higher mortality rate of what we are looking at is 2 to 3% in the various uh, patients that have been reported. But also remember this is relatively new. It yeah. is still evolving. We don't really know how many total cases have, have are there. What we are being told by the WHO interim guidance on a daily basis is that there are 77,000 plus confirmed cases right now of which 76,000 plus are in China and there's about 1,400 in uh, outside of China in 28 countries with a mortality rate of approximately 2%. But uh, remember, this does not include patients who may be asymptomatic. So the right. spectrum of disease may be, you know, minor illness that never goes diagnosed, never is diagnosed because patients don't present to the healthcare system. It's a minor illness that just goes away to a very severe illness that results in death. So that spectrum of disease uh, is still being confirmed. We have no epidemiological, serological surveys right. to see how many people were infected and what the actual death rate is. We know from the confirmed diagnosed cases, those that are presenting to the healthcare system with symptoms and are being screened and are being diagnosed, that the death rate there is approximately 2%. Wow. The infectivity rate from those patients who are clinically diagnosed have illness is in the range of about three to four patients per infected case, which is very high. Uh, compare that to influenza, where it's around 0.8 to 1 so case per, per infected case. This is very... So it has a much, much higher infectivity and it has uh, a much higher mortality in the symptomatic patients. So this has a very high infectious rate basically is what you're saying compared to the influenza virus, the NCOV 2019 coronavirus. Correct. So on the, in the patients that are clinically infected and have symptomatic disease, the infectivity rate is much higher than in influenza or in the prior coronavirus the novel coronavirus 19 is spread primarily via respiratory droplets. So we do have to take into consideration what exactly is considered a close contact. Would you explain to us what is considered a close contact? Yeah, so, so this is a droplet-borne airborne transmission. So a person who's got the coronavirus in the lungs or in the respiratory tree coughs or sneezes or talks those droplets may contain the infective virus and those droplets then are in the air and then actually settle down on surfaces. They don't hang in the air for too long because they're big droplets. Okay. And unlike other organisms that can be transmitted through the airborne route where they can hang out in the air for a long period of time, this is not the case with coronavirus. These droplets essentially uh, travel to a distance of three to four and a maximum of six feet after a patient releases that coronavirus into the surrounding air. And then they settle onto services where they can survive for up to four to six days. So majority of the transmission from person to person is from people who are, who don't have the disease yet, who touch those services with the active coronavirus pick it up on their hands and then touch their face and inhale that virus and it gets into the respiratory tract where it attaches to receptors and then sets up a disease process uh, depending on the immune system and the other comorbidities of that uh, patient results, resulting in a clinical illness. So from an actual case, if you have close prolonged contact within six feet, you can get a direct transmission where the patient coughs and then the susceptible person inhales that virus directly from the surrounding six feet of that patient. Okay, so how long is the incubation period for this virus? So 
So what we know is that the incubation period is 14 days. However, there are outliers where one patient has now been discovered to have asymptomatic incubation period of approximately 27 days. So the majority of cases, it's 14 days, but there can be outliers where patients present after 14 days and could be up to as, as much as four weeks. And so once you inhale the virus, it takes that much, it may take that much time for the virus to set up the disease and then manifest itself as a clinical illness. So do you think the incubation period could be longer than 14 days? Well, we know that there's one case of 27 days. So yes, the answer is yes, the hope. Uh, but it's rare. Majority of the patients will have an incubation period of about two weeks. Uh, but there could be some outliers up to four weeks. Okay. So that is something that is still being studied on uh, as we get more cases coming to surface. Um, what are the current testing modalities for the coronavirus to screen for this virus? So patients present with a flu-like illness, with or without fever. The only difference being that you may not have fever. You will have. You may just have respiratory symptoms, whether it's sneezing, coughing, sore throat, frank sputum production, or pneumonia. is dependent on individual cases. Once you get a case like that and you have a, a history of exposure to areas where there is coronavirus or exposure to a patient who has been diagnosed with the new coronavirus or novel coronavirus, then you have to do the routine studies, which is sputum culture and then you know the usual blood test. But in addition to specifically diagnose this disease, you can do either a nasopharyngeal swab or a sputum swab for PCR for this new novel coronavirus. The PCR tests are available only through the State Department of Health Labs mm -hmm. in New York. That's in Wadsworth, but other states have also been issued these kits from the FDA. Uh, several kits have now gone out to these State Department of Health Labs under the uh, CLIA waiver. CLIA is the, is the uh, governance from the FDA that governs who can do these tests. So once you have a case, you have to call the Department of Health and then they will approve for you to send the specimens to them. They will forward it to the DOH lab where the PCR will be done. If the PCR is positive, the patient has novel coronavirus, so COVID-19 disease. Mm -hmm. If the PCR is negative, that doesn't entirely rule out novel coronavirus disease. So we don't know that yet. You know, The whole disease state is evolving so rapidly and what we do know right now is that we can diagnose 98% of cases pretty easily with this PCR test. And if the degree of suspicion is very high, and even if the first PCR comes back negative, you should then request a second PCR within a few days or three days, seven days, whatever. That's clinical judgment. Okay. So the, the res to, get, to receive the results back after you do the screening test, the, how many days does it take to get those results back? So the PCR itself takes a few hours to do, and it's only a question of, you know, when will the lab do the test? And so the specimen is sent with strict precautions, and it's stored at controlled temperatures until the PCR can be done in the Department of Health lab. And once the test is done, the result is released immediately. And the person who has requested the test, the provider will get a call from the Department of Health to tell them whether the test is positive or negative. So my thinking is that this would at the most take 48 hours. Okay. So then when it comes to screening patients, not only is it the symptomatology that's pretty similar to the influenza virus, but would you also take into consideration asking the patient their travel history? Were they recently traveling to um, Wuhan, China, or anywhere around that vicinity geographical location? Or have they been uh, around friends or family members that were recently traveling to that part of the world? Is that a question that you would recommend the clinician ask? So I think all clinicians, all healthcare facilities, including reception facilities in prisons, should get a travel history in this setting. Uh, so travel history is important, but what's also important is have 
has that individual person been exposed to a known case of novel coronavirus? Sometimes. So, for example, this one French national that exposed 12 British citizens in Italy had just come from China, had the disease. He was staying in a chalet, in a ski chalet, where other British personnel got exposed around him. So even though the British personnel had not traveled to an endemic area for current known endemic area for this novel coronavirus, they were exposed to a patient that had been there who was in the incubation phase and had then developed the illness and transmitted it to these uh, British nationals. So the history must include history of travel and potential exposure to anybody that may have clinical illness and may have traveled to that uh, part of the world. Italy at this time has the largest number of outbreaks that is outside of Asia. It has the largest number of outbreaks of the novel coronavirus 19 that is present in Europe. And so the largest number of cases outside of the continent of Asia is currently in Europe in the country of Italy. Italian officials have confirmed approximately 152 cases and four deaths in the northern regions of Italy. I think that gentleman that you're talking of that is currently being treated in Italy, he he himself did not go to China, but he was, like you were saying, exposed. I don't think that gentleman knew that that person that uh, recently had gotten sick from it or something of that sort, but he did have that travel history as part of the risk factor that caused this man to get uh, ill in the in Italy right now. So yeah. so it's interesting to have that, but that's an interesting piece of uh, interesting piece of history that you yourself, yeah. right, you yourself were not there or you and your family was not there, but you had a close direct relationship with someone that was recently there, though they at that time did not know that they were coming down with the virus. They were in the, as you were saying, the incubation period. And so what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's disconcerting that, you know, you have a droplet transmission disease that has a higher infectivity rate than what we are used to seeing in the past. And with the global economy and people traveling all over, uh, this is going to spread. The only question is, you know, are we able to contain it? And are we able to reduce the exposure in individual patients and manage the disease process and minimize the, either the morbidity or mortality of this virus. What are the current treatment recommendations for the novel coronavirus, COVID-19? So as of now, the official guideline is symptomatic care. So you have to take care of your body if you're the patient and you have to take care of your immune system. So if you keep your body healthy, and you don't have comorbidities, or if you do have comorbidities, for example, diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, and you have optimized the care of those body systems, then it's likely that the damage will be limited and the outcome will be good and you will recover. Uh, Are there ways of enhancing the immune system apart from optimizing good medical care for those diseases? I think for that, you have to look outside of allopathic medicine. There is Ayurvedic medicine, you know, which recommends using uh, herbal products like ginger and garlic and turmeric. Okay. Uh, Dr. Fauci's uh, National Institute of Health had done a very big study on turmeric and its effect on viruses and bacteria back when. And, you know, if I, if I am the patient, I would then use that kind of knowledge that's outside of the allopathic medicine world to try and support my immune system and, and try and reduce the exposure to the virus as much as possible so that the outcome is favorable. But there are no specific antivirals as of yet. There is no specific vaccine as of yet. Okay. Uh, there are research initiatives going on in China and they are looking at at least two different antiviral compounds to see if they have activity. And the tests are in animals. Human t- trials will be launched very soon in a matter of weeks. Okay, that's days. good to hear. Uh-huh. And the vaccine is being developed. Uh, should they have found 
they have been able to culture the virus and that cultured virus has been given to various research, research institutions around the world. Everybody's working on developing a vaccine against uh, this virus. And hope, I'm hoping that with a fast track, six months to a year from now, we'll have at least a potential for, you know, a potential for a vaccine which will reduce the amount of transmission and will reduce the severity of disease. Uh, apart from uh, those, there's also a research initiative going on in China using antibody serum from patients who have recovered from this disease, trying to limit the disease by giving that serum to those who have recently been infected with severe disease and trying to limit the damage from this virus in those patients. The initial results from those completely uncontrolled use of this serum, antibody serum, shows some promise. But whether it will actually pan out or not, only time will tell. Okay, so at this time, how many cases are currently in the United States? I think there are 35 uh, confirmed cases, eight in Canada, uh, place of exposure likely China, 14, and uh, outside of China, 18, and then in a reporting country, it's a transmission in the United States person to person too. So then you have it, 35 cases in the U.S. This past week, it appears that there have been a few countries that recently got affected with the 2019 COVID virus, and these include South Korea, Italy, Iran, with how rapidly this virus is spreading, what is your expert opinion on on this matter? So it's interesting, you know, there are now 28 countries, uh, and in the last two days, there's two new countries uh, that have reported this epidemic. Now, think about it. I'm just going to use Iran as an example. Uh, there are no infection control and epidemiological surveillance programs in that country. Uh, for them to report any disease, and any cases for COVID-19 means that there's probably a huge amount of undiagnosed uh, cases around. And in Iran, where there is close contact between people, because people live in, in a sort of quote-unquote shanty town and uh, housing where there are six people to a room sometimes, uh, where there's poverty, I think you're going to see a huge amount of spread in, in a country where there is hardly any uh, infection control programs, so to say, outside of major cities and even there, outside of major institutions, hospitals. There's hardly any infection control. There's no system in place to go around doing contact tracing. Um, so you're going to see, you know, in places like uh, Africa and places like Middle East and in poor countries, uh, that the d- disease has the potential to spread and spread very fast yeah. and then cause a lot of uh, mobility around the world. This is a very, very profound issue that we're dealing with regarding the this infectious disease process. It, it's, thank you for sharing, sharing that, the infection control that's happening in Iran. And it's really, this is something that really does need to be taken very seriously. Currently in China, there are approximately 500 reported cases that are in four prisons, and two of them are present in Hubei, which is where the center of the outbreak has been taking place in the mainland in the province of Wuhan. Currently in Hubei, the Wuhan women's prison has about 230 cases, and the Cheyenne Hanjani prison has 41 cases. In regards to that, would you give us your thoughts on the current novel coronavirus 2019 outbreak that occurred in China's prison systems? What can we learn from this? I believe there are two prison systems in the Wuhan district in China that have uh, reported coronavirus. And think about it in a prison, in a jail, you know, you have lots of people living in close quarters uh, with no airborne transmission prevention measures in place. There are isolation rooms in every prison, but they are limited. And by isolation rooms, I I talk about the AIIR system where you have 12 exchanges of air per hour. The air goes through a HEPA filter and then it's sent out into the open air 
and not recirculated. There are limited such infection control rooms in the prison. So, you know, if you think about a patient coming into a prison, even if they had all these isolation rooms in the Chinese prisons, uh, it would very quickly overwhelm uh, that prison system's ability to isolate, you know, maybe two or three patients. So that, then that patient would be in a, at least in the incubation phase where the patient is asymptomatic in a situation where they're in close contact with other prisoners within six feet. Sometimes there are two, three prisoners in one cell. Even in New York, sometimes there are two prisoners in one cell. And they share a common hallway. They share a common place to eat. They share common dormitory bathrooms. And in a dorm-like setting, you could now imagine the potential to spread very fast. Yes. And then, uh, in jail setting, for example, the patient could get infected, acquire the coronavirus, and be released within 24 hours out into the community, and then go out and spread it into the community. So prisons could serve potentially, prisons and jails could potentially serve as a uh, vehicle for rapid spread yes. of coronavirus because of the limited ability to isolate these patients before they are symptomatic. And so we have to do the best we can to prepare for something like this. I think given the the number of people who are infected in the world and the fact that it is showing up in the United States, that we may potentially see a case come and present itself into the jail and prison setting. And in that case, we have to be prepared to do the best we can to limit that spread. Uh, the only real solution will be once we have a vaccine. Till that time, I think it's just going to be we have to be on our guard, do the best we can, and hope that it doesn't overwhelm the healthcare system in the prisons and in the jails. Uh, whether we should use other than allopathic means to boost immune systems is an extremely controversial issue. It's a prison. You're not allowed to do anything else. And uh, I'm telling all my patients in, in private practice that, you know, they should use immune enhancers. But in the prison, that's that's not something that I would right. There's, I would be allowed to do. There are some stringent protocols and standards that have to be followed. And so until, but I, I do agree with you, doctor, that the other modalities that can provide a boost to the immune system, as you mentioned, some of the herbs, it, it, even though it is a controversial topic in the allopathic world, it, it, it doesn't, it won't hurt. It, it's actually, it's like a vitamin C for for the immune system. Let's just add more to the cocktail. <laughs> so, um, let me ask with this, with this question in regards to the preparation that clinicians can do in, in the prison systems, what are your thoughts on the personal protective equipment? Which ones would you recommend a correctional medicine yeah. physician to wear? Yeah, so that's the one thing we are going to do is we are going to stock up on the N95 tested masks for the healthcare personnel. So if healthcare personnel are exposed, they have to be protected. Protection for a healthcare personnel or someone that's a caregiver for an infected case and for the patient themselves, it has to start with the N95 respiratory mask. Okay. So that's the mask that is fit tested that's, uh, that does not allow the virus from a patient to come outside into the environment and into the droplet mode. And it protects the healthcare giver and the caregiver for the patient from inhaling that virus, even if there is droplet spread. Those masks have to be stockpiled okay. in the prison system, in the healthcare system, everywhere. With regards to gowns and gloves, the patients have to be trained on putting on those gowns and taking off those gowns. Healthcare personnel have already been trained on donning and doffing personal protective equipment. If you're dealing with an infected case, you have to also put on eye guards. Okay. So you have those available and we have to stock up on those and prepare in case there is uh, an exposure in the prison system, the healthcare personnel have access to all these personal protective equipment with gowns, gloves, masks, and eye guards. Okay. So do you think that also we can exercise preventative measures? So hand washing is the cornerstone of all infection control. The CDC website and the WHO website have this 20-second hand washing recommendation, which I would strictly enforce in any healthcare setting. So hand washing after every contact, 
after every donning and doffing of personal protective equipment has to be done. And the more you wash your hands, the better off you are. Because otherwise, as I said before, the most of the transmission occurs from picking up the virus on your hands and then inhaling it by touching your face. So if you wash your hands on a regular basis, 50 times a day, the likelihood of you getting coronavirus infection from an infected patient is probably very small. If you don't have access to soap and water, then the 60-70% alcohol hand sanitizers absolutely work. So that should be done. Cleaning of surfaces by use of alcohol sanitizers that we are using in the healthcare system today is perfectly fine. And those measures of cleaning the room and cleaning the environment where the patient has been uh, are standard and should be used. There's nothing specific about this coronavirus and we should use whatever is already in place. And if it's not in place, we should make sure that cleaning of environmental services in an, from an infected patient, the measures are in place and we are prepared for that. You had said that the incarcerated population, if it, one individual was to get infected with this uh, COVID-19 uh, coronavirus, that they would be at higher risk of spreading it to the rest of the prison population in that facility. With regards to that, do you think the United States correctional facilities should have access to the testing equipment and supplies on hand at the prison sites as we continue to try to test for this novel coronavirus so that way they can detect it quicker versus later seems to be time is very essential in this in this regard if we quickly know that this patient has it then we're able to act quickly in terms of separating that patient from the rest of the population what are your thoughts on that oh i absolutely agree so you know given the nature of the housing system in the prison that is conducive to spread of respiratory disease for one and two, the incarcerated population is more vulnerable because they have their protoplasm by the nature of the population that we have to deal with, you know, with high degree of smoking, alcoholism, drug use and other infectious diseases, immunosuppressive diseases, you're going to see uh, that this virus will have an easier time in spreading for all those reasons. So I think we have to be prepared. And we have to have uh, already established protocols and equipment to prevent transmission and to diagnose the disease. So yes, yes, we should have testing kits available. If not available on site, then at least available within a couple of hours of request from the DTOH. Uh, My personal recommendation to the chief medical officer in New York State Prison is going to be that you have testing the PCR testing kits available at every prison, at least at the reception facilities. So, you know, if you have a reception facility for male and female in every hub, then each of those reception facilities should have at least one or two testing kits available mm-hmm. just in case uh, the patient shows up. Because as you said, time is of the essence. And the sooner you get a hold of it, the less will be the transmission and the less will be the disease burden in that prison. So because of how rapid this this virus spreads and because we're still learning so much about this virus, which within due time, we're going to have more information. Give us your recommendations on how you would handle this delicate situation in the incarcerated population appropriately. And I mean, not only in regards to the incarcerated patients, but as well as the staff from the warden to the correctional officers to security, transportation. Could you give us your expert opinion on how this situation can be handled? This is a a difficult, difficult question and difficult to put into practice, but there's no question in my mind that we would have to quarantine the patients that are suspected cases. We would have to quarantine the close contacts. And we will do a contact tracing. The good news is that we have the ability to do so, at least in New York. We have a great infection control system. We've learned from our experiences with the TB epidemic. And we have uh, an ironclad sort of system that does this. We do this for Legionella. We do this for mycoplasma. We do this for the flu. And we have shown the ability to control those epidemics. So I think the coronavirus will test the system for sure, Yes. given its novelty and its ability to spread. Uh, but I think the system, New York State prison system, is well equipped to handle this. We are going to have the supplies close at hand. We will quarantine inmates. We will absolutely think about locking down the prison 
with respect to staff in a lockdown situation will go into effect. We have all those protocols in place and we should be able to do whatever is necessary. All elective procedures and elective medical stuff will be put on hold uh, until the uh, epidemic is under control. There will be decontamination procedures will be put and have are already in place and will be instituted if necessary, if and when necessary. So I think we are very well prepared and as well prepared as we can be given the limitations of a prison system. And I highly recommend that all prison systems actually use this time that we may have for the next few weeks to prepare because I think this is going to happen. It is going to impact the prison population, starting with the jail and with the reception facilities. And those are the places where the Department of Health should actively take a role in preparing those facilities to limit the spread of the disease. So what are your thoughts on the what kind of room you would put these kind of patients in if they were to test positive for the novel coronavirus? Yeah, if there's an airborne isolation room, the AIIR, you should do that. If okay. there is no availability of an airborne isolation room in a prison, then you have to look to healthcare facilities around that prison. And if that's not possible, then you do the best you can by putting on a mask on that patient, an N95 respiratory mask, possibly a HEPA filter in that room. You can do that, which is hard to imagine how many HEPA filters you would need. And uh, do the best you can and, and then lock the prison down and put on masks on all the staff, on the correctional officers, on the medical staff, and have them wash their hands, have that decontaminate the environment as much as possible with uh, alcohol-based uh, decontamination uh, procedures. Right. So that you limit the spread of this virus. And then, uh, as I said, you know, ask staff, patients, inmates, and everybody in that prison to take care of their health. Uh, absolutely ban smoking completely. Right. Uh, this, you know, I don't understand why in New York State prisons, the smoking is still allowed in certain situations. Prison should be a smoke-free facility. Maybe this virus and its preparation will finally move the state legislature forward in passing this law which bans smoking in all prisons in all situations. I think the cigarettes are rather expensive in New York. I think they're about $15 for a carton. So it's an expensive habit as well. I'm not quite understanding that either. Yeah, but the prisoners don't have to pay state tax. So the oh. cigarettes in prison are much cheaper. I think 50, 60% cheaper than what you get on the outside. So they um. consider rewards of the state so they don't pay tax. Okay. So, you know, and having said that, I think smoking should be banned in prison, period. Yeah, you're right. Uh, there's no question why we are allowing inmates to smoke in a public health setting. Maybe this will be the impetus for banning smoking in uh, prison. It should be done. It must be done. I, I agree with you, doctor. It's a. It's definitely something that we, we really don't want to increase the risk of something that we can control, such as smoking, to enhance the ability for this virus to be spread around for the entire prison population for that facility. So thank you for that. The other question I have is you did mention a bit about that you're pretty certain that we're going to have uh, some kind of possible situation here within the prison system in the USA. How do you think in general, it, for not only the incarcerated population, but the healthcare staff and the security staff, as well as family and friends. How do you think this is going to pan out with regards to the novel coronavirus outbreak? How do you think people are really going to react to this and and, and handle this? So the one last thing we must do is have educational aids available for people who are involved close contacts, staff, medical personnel, their friends and family members, and educate them on the fact that this virus is, I know it's deadly, and it can be managed, it can be controlled, and there are systems in place to control this virus. By educating the people involved in this whole situation, and by preventing any kind of panic and, and irrational behavior, I think we can easily manage this disease in the prison system and limit its uh, potential for damage, whether by morbidity or mortality. Okay. I think there was, a, there was something that we were thinking about as well with regards to, it seems to be the number is growing very quickly, and that is creating a lot of worry for 
not only the clinicians, but also the public in general. As an infectious disease specialist, when do you, there comes a point where it does have to become steady or, or level off. How long do you think it'll take for the number of people that get infected to finally come to a peak and then it, it just stays at that particular level? It just flattens out and it doesn't continue to rise. So the virus induces an immunity in the person that, it's in, the person that is infected. That immunity is then protective against this virus. So what you're going to see is people getting infected, recovering, and be immune, and we call that herd immunity. Once there is a critical level of herd immunity, the ability of this virus to be transmitted is compromised and the epidemic starts to come to an end. What we have seen in China is from November to now, the new cases are starting to sort of level off and drop off in the Wuhan district. So you can see that this has taken a three to four month span for that herd immunity to start to develop. Now that amount of time can be reduced if you have an effective vaccine or if you have an antiviral medication. Right. That time can be reduced if you institute proper isolation measures, which were not done in China. If you have already prepared for this disease to come into your community, you're going to be able to limit that damage uh, down from four months to maybe two months. And, and ho we're hoping that the research scientific community in the world will give us the tools of vaccines and antivirals to limit this. So we should try and slow this disease down as much as possible because in the next few months, we should have those tools that we are all looking forward to and try and keep ourselves as healthy as possible and, you know, use, use this opportunity to prepare in the time that we have left before it actually hits this country and this community that we live and work in. So with regards to that, what is your expert opinion on how long does it take to create chemoprophylaxis uh, or an antiviral agent for, for this? I mean, you're, you're the expert. And so, I mean, there's, no, there's nothing that's written in stone, but usually how long on average does it take to create, create these treatment options? So historically, it has taken years. But remember, we have better technology. We have better tools. We have better research and we have a lot more knowledge. So science, time, and technology has given us way better tools and ability to either create a new antiviral or use an old substance that has worked against other viruses to see if it works against coronavirus. And, and as I said, there are two promising compounds already that are being tested both in cell culture and in animal studies, and they both seem to be working Okay. Um, one one is working pretty well and the other one is working fairly well. And so I'm hopeful that in the next few months, four to six months, we will have at least an investigational antiviral that can be used on a compassionate basis. Okay. And the same is true of vaccines with reverse genetics and with the fact that we already have this virus structure and we know what the preserved protein structure is. We should be able to create a vaccine much faster than what we are used to. Uh, it used to take years to create vaccines. Uh, I think we are going to see that, you know, from the NIH at least, translate new information into an effective vaccine in months and not in years. So I'm hopeful that uh, beyond 2020, right. this novel coronavirus will cease to be a problem. I'm pretty confident of that. Uh, I don't think this virus has a chance beyond 2020. But that's my personal opinion and okay. pure speculation at this point. Well, no, that's it's good to hear. I mean, with regards to that, because you are you're a specialist in this field and we're all anxiously waiting to have some kind of positive result in regards to this outbreak. It's, there's just too many countries and populations of people that are getting innocently affected by this and they're not even no, aware that they even have this. And that I think when you don't know, it raises fear. It's the unknown, the mystery, the mysteriousness of it all that causes fear among just everyone. And so just the regular person. And so knowledge brings power and also knowledge brings comfort. So the more that we can at least have an idea on at least rate, it at least brings a sense of peacefulness in reacting to this disease process and handling it appropriately and calmly. So we, we thank you for that. 
Uh, Dr. Morjani, you were recently in South Africa. Uh, you do a lot of infectious disease work internationally. Could you share with us what you were doing in South Africa in regards to your uh, infectious my disease My visit to South Africa this time was not uh, professional, it was personal. But of course, you do look at the systems that exist there for care delivery for HIV and hepatitis and tuberculosis. And uh, so I didn't do anything formally, but informally, you know, I know lots of friends and uh, friends who are there who are working in that part of the world and giving their time and giving their expertise to taking care of patients uh, wherever they may be. So I'm, I'm happy to report that uh, the number of people who are being treated for HIV in the African subcontinent has increased rapidly and we are doing a great job, I think, uh, by way of funding that kind of initiative in Africa to prevent mother-to-child transmission, to take care of people who are infected with HIV. Well, ultimately, that country has to step up its political efforts and uh, create systems that only they can do to try and uh, manage this wretched epidemic that's affecting hundreds of thousands of people in Africa uh, for HIV. I'm hopeful that based on the experience we have in the United States, that these countries in Africa will continue to improve their uh, healthcare delivery systems for infectious diseases. Have you gotten to do, is, is that usually the country that you do your international work or have you also done international infectious disease work in other countries? Uh, so I'm from India, so I've done some work there. And uh, right now I'm focusing mostly on uh, the work in the United States, given my job responsibilities here to the Department of Health and the prison system. But once uh, I have time on my hands, I will pick up my efforts to provide these services to any country in the world that chooses to uh, invite me. Uh, did you run into anyone during this recent travel that uh, is currently being affected by the novel coronavirus? Uh, not directly, but there were people who were being quarantined uh, and not being allowed to return to China for uh, continuing their work or education. So I did speak to a couple of people, and uh, it's interesting to see how the world is reacting. Uh, I can only sympathize with the people who are on these cruise ships who are being quarantined. Yes. Uh, you know, their life is put on hold for two weeks or more. Or more. Yeah, that's yeah. that's true. So this was really, really wonderful. I really appreciate you taking the time to talking to us today about your, your expertise and uh, what we can do in regards to this novel coronavirus and the incarcerated population. So we thank you for your time, Dr. Murjani. It was really a delightful conversation. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I'm always happy to be of help. Thank you so much, Dr. Murjani, and uh, we'll definitely be in touch soon. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye now. next week for our next episode for the voices of the forgotten medicine for the incarcerated.